Good afternoon, everybody. RJ, care to join me up here? We play a little past the microphone here. We got a lot of a uh, lot of announcements, a lot of people involved. So I'm going to start off by saying my name is Dan Albrick. I'm with Leopardo Construction. I am Programs Chair, along with uh, Jeanette Outlaw with OFS and Howard Wender with Strata. Say hi, wave your hands. It's the uh, programs uh, for this year. Um, remember that today's program is being podcast. We encourage a lot of Q&A towards the end of the presentation, so please raise your hand if you do have a question so we can capture your remarks. Um, I'm going to turn it over to RJ, who's going to announce our uh, June 10th program. RJ? Thank you. Um, it's a real pleasure to be able to have an opportunity to put a program here again, uh, together again. On your table, you should be seeing there's a, a postcard out there. Uh, this is going to be just an absolutely fantastic uh, revisiting of uh, what's, what, what some of the legendary developers have done in the city and what they're doing now. Because this is a story that started in the 70s uh, and uh, is, is still continuing. So you'll find that these people are still doing a lot of work. Eugene Golub, chairman of uh, Golub & Company, literally does not do this, okay? We talked him into coming here and, and, and joining us for this. So that's gonna be fantastic, a lot of history. Paul Beitler. Loves to uh, loves to talk, uh, and uh, he was also pleased as punch to come here. And Richie Stein, another person that doesn't do very much talking, but all three of these guys have buildings all over the skyline of Chicago. So you're, you'll be hearing a lot of uh, a lot of great stories. And then Rick, Rick Abraham uh, uh, is uh, early Buck, early John Buck, done a lot of development. Uh, he's going to be a fantastic moderator. You're going to love him. Really look forward to seeing you. Uh, expect to find a packed room. We want to have twice this many people in the room, okay? Look forward to it. Thanks. Thank you, RJ. All right, and then uh, anybody, as, uh, as um, Carla had alluded to early, anybody uh, ready for a road trip? I'm going to turn it over to uh, Tom Stacy, and also thank you to Brian Hayes for setting up our Wisconsin program. Thanks, Dan. Uh, Tom Stacy with Epstein and UN Architects. Based in Milwaukee, which if you haven't heard is in Wisconsin, it's just a little north, and it it really does warm my heart to see this much cheese, uh, you know, on a menu. Uh, very pleased to announce our first Cornet Wisconsin program, June 16th. It's an evening program at the Harley Davidson Museum. We we couldn't find a more appropriate spot, and if you haven't been there, it's a really tremendous venue program that evening will be featuring the Uline project, which is um, a corporate relocation uh, company moving, I'm sorry to say, from Illinois to Wisconsin. Uh, 200,000 square foot office relocation, million square foot distribution center. So we have Phil Hunt from Uline as a panelist, also the village administrator from Pleasant Prairie, Wisconsin, which is a community that uh, Uline went to will be there along with other public and private sector folks to talk about the whole process from the decision to move through site acquisition, uh, public contributions, and so on. So we're really excited about it. Hopefully uh, a, a big group of you can jump the train or uh, take the adventure of a car ride up to Wisconsin on June 16th. Thank you, Tom. We've got a lot of Wisconsin going on. Um, speaking of, about, about uh, a couple months ago, we did a, a little uh, event at United's headquarters, and we were talking about uh, different events kind of throughout the year, and, and George 
Brown with Humana had raised his hands. How do we get more Wisconsin involved? So here we are. Thanks for coming down today. And then also, that being said, in July, that takes us to July 8th, our program will feature Humana. So thank you again, George. Appreciate it. We're looking forward to that one as well. So today's program, a new lease on leases focusing on FASB 13. Um, again, this, a lot of thank yous out there for everybody. We really appreciate your feedback. This one, I want to say thank you to uh, Michael Duffy with Brady Corporation, uh, who had talked to, I guess, uh, Tom and Brian about uh, this particular topic. So we do listen to your suggestions, so we really appreciate it. And here we are today to talk about and open up the eyes on what's happening in, uh, under the proposed changes under FASB 13. Uh, our speakers today, John Hepp, with, uh, who's a partner with Grant Thornton, and David Clark, Internal Corporate Finance, UGL Equus. Their bios are on your table, uh, front and back side, so uh, take a look for more details. Presentations will be posted online. They also have a white paper with a link uh, on our website that will be posted as well uh, for more in-depth discussion. So that being said, I'm going to turn it over. And everybody, welcome to the, to the table, David Clark and John Hepp. Thank you very much. on. Can you hear? There we go. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, John and I very much appreciate the opportunity to come speak to you today. Uh, I, I was, uh, my wife asked me what we were talking about today and I said, well, it's a discussion on accounting. And she said, well, one, I can't imagine anybody wanting to come listen to you. John, she said, would be listened to. Me, no. And she said, I can't imagine anybody showing up for a luncheon on accounting. So again, we thank you very much. Uh, we were a little concerned we might have a, it would be John and I talking uh, back and forth one again. Uh, we started this, John and I have actually uh, started uh, a joint venture between uh, Grant Thornton and UGL Equus about a year ago related to this topic. Uh, there was a draft out in March, uh, FASB IASB said uh, after three decades, we're going to turn around and completely change the way we account for leases, and that's all leases. The only lease, uh, leasing arrangement that is not subject to this new rule change uh, that they're proposing will be for mineral leases. So uh, John was just uh, having a discussion with the uh, Trucking Association. They're very concerned about this heavy equipment. I mean, any leasing whatsoever for this particular crowd uh, you probably get it from two ways because obviously it will affect you as an operating company. The second part is most of us are in the real estate business directly or indirectly and this is going to truly affect owners, developers, landlords, uh, obviously tenants significantly and John will get into the more of the specifics uh, related to that. Uh, I'll finish up by uh, uh, hopefully giving some uh, practical examples of what uh, all of this means. But uh, again, as I told the program committee, and uh, Dan has heard me say this, uh, we're a little premature. The rule, uh, the actual proposed rule is not coming out for another two or three weeks. Uh, is that right? Uh, roughly. So. Uh, uh, we're up here today telling you this is what we think after a year of doing this, but uh, uh, two weeks from now, y'all can call us up and say, nope, sorry, you weren't even close. So uh, we're, we're doing the, the best we can uh, uh, to, 
to at least give you some guidelines. Our goal and intent for today is to really just make you aware of this issue, uh, understand that we've got uh, this right now, the implementation date is supposed to be January 1st, 2012. Again, that may shift, although uh, in the last couple months, we have become more certain that they are aiming for that January 1 date. So it's just something to follow. It's going to affect you and the operation of your businesses as well as your clients. Uh, the reason for this is fairly straightforward. Um, leases historically uh, have not uh, been accounted for uh, as an on balance sheet, mostly off balance sheet. The FASB 13, as I say, is the rule that we've been operating under for almost three decades. The bulk of uh, the leasing, uh, uh, or real estate particularly, is leases. And so uh, it's all off balance sheet work. Enron, World, I mean, WorldCom, the names are well known, uh, were all off balance sheets. So FASB and ISB, IASB, which is the international side of FASB, have come and said we're going to go and change the rules. So with that, turn it over to John and let him kind of describe what it is from primarily the lessee side, which has been the, the biggest focus for the last year, but a little touch on the lessor side, which is going to be included uh, in the proposed rule when it is introduced in a couple weeks. Thank you. Well, well, let me continue our Wisconsin theme here today. I am, of course, a graduate of the University of Wisconsin-Madison on Wisconsin. I'm going to come down here. Oh, I better take the clicker with me. Yeah, I'm not sure if your slides are on or mine. Uh -huh. One, I'm a man of the people, and two, I'm nearsighted, so I, I like to get down close to the crowd. Let me start out uh, with a disclaimer. Uh, this is not a group of lawyers, so I don't have to get through the whole text. I can just read the bubble. <coughs> That, that says that any opinions that I may give here, and I, you know, usually I do get put a few in the, the course of the talk, those will be strictly my own. You can't uh, hold Grant Thornton uh, liable for anything that, that I might say. Although uh, we do have put many of the thoughts that I'm going to talk about today into our comment letters and probably will uh, repeat them in our comments on the exposure draft. A few words about lease accounting, complex. Inconsistent, incomplete. Thank you very much. Uh, let me turn it back over to Dave now. I'm going to talk a little bit about the scope of the statement as proposed and the measurement. Scope is going to be which kind of contracts are going to be included within the lease standard. And then measurement is going to be how they're measured. There are other issues involved in this paper, but in, the, in the, the time we have here, I wanted to pick out what I thought were the more important issues. What is a lease and what isn't a lease? You can look at, a, at a, one transaction, a single transaction, as sort of a continuum. It could be structured in such a fashion that it would be clear it's a sale of a good. Take, for example, a building, a, a single-tenant building <coughs> that's constructed specifically for the tenant. There's a structure with a lease. The lease may run for 30 years. It's triple net. The tenant pays all of the costs, and at the end of the lease, they can buy it for a dollar. I think that would be pretty clear, that that would be a purchase. 
Well, under the FASB proposal that's coming out right now, it will be a purchase. It won't even be considered a lease. You can put it in the form of a lease, but it's going to be considered a sale. Moving toward the middle there, I could have a lease where I have two or three floors of a building that I'm leasing for three years. This is clearly not a purchase of the property, although there are those at the boards who would account for that as a purchase of a portion of the building. You may hear this. This is going to be talked about actually on Wednesday of next week at the board meetings. It's called the de-recognition approach, where the lessor could conceivably de-recognize a portion of their asset under that condition as a sale. Under the approach on the left, you're not going to be in the leasing standard. You're going to be in another new standard called the revenue recognition standard. The lessor will be recognizing an obligation to let the lessee use the building during the term. Under that uh, standard, but will also recognize a profit as if they had sold the property on that date. The lessee would apparently just simply record that as an ordinary purchase. In the middle, something which historically has been an operating lease, now you're going to see a recorded asset, a new type of asset, a right to use asset, and a corresponding obligation that will be the present value of the expected lease payments under the lease. Before, these were off the balance sheet. Now they will be on. For the lessee, they will be on gross. There will be an asset. There will be a liability. The asset will be amortized slash depreciated. Liability will be recognized as the payments, as the payments come in. will reduce the obligation. And it will, there will be interest charged. What used to be rent expense under this proposal will now become depreciation and interest expense. A first point to note. Any contracts you have that rely on EBITDA as a measure need to be reexamined. Because of this, EBITDA could go up quite a bit. Moving over to the far side of the transaction stream, when could it determined, be determined to be a service? Well, take warehousing, for example. I could lease warehouse space where I have control over it and put all of my own employees into the warehouse. That would be clearly a lease. Or I could hire warehousing services. I may engage a company that does warehousing services where they have control over the building. Maybe it's their employees doing the services. They have an option maybe to use more than one building. This could be a service. Why does that make a difference? Because that service contract will be totally off the balance sheet, just as it is today. This is creating a new bright line. Does anybody here know what a bright line is? That's what you have to walk on when the police pull you over at 11 o'clock at night, I think. In accounting terminology, a bright line is when 
a small change in the structure of an agreement, of a contract, can cause a large change in the accounting treatment. Now, under the current lease accounting rules, you, you're, you've, you probably know all of these. The supposed bright lines were like 75% of the estimated life of the asset, 90% of the present value of the lease payments is greater than 90% of the fair value of the asset. And you could structure around these bright lines, and frequently did, because if you crossed it, you could go from off balance sheet, zero impact on the balance sheet, to everything being on balance sheet. Often a source of restatements and huge embarrassment if somebody gets the lease contract wrong, or you have a disagreement with your accountant's ex post. Well, now we're going to have two bright lines. We're going to have one as to whether it's a purchase of a good slash sale of a good between being a lease, and now another one between whether it's a lease and whether it's a service. And they're both going to be very important. Now another factor where services are important are that services will not be capitalized in the lease. So if I have a full service lease to rent real estate and there's other elements within the lease, common area maintenance, there may, uh, security, there may be groundskeeping, there could be a number of elements associated with water, utilities, whatever. Services now would not be capitalized under certain circumstances and would need to be separated out and accounted for distinctly. <clears throat> if a service component is considered distinct, the total payments will be allocated between the service and the lease components. We expect that this will cause a major difference in how lease contracts are written because it will be necessary in the future to see whether services are distinct within a contract and if you want to keep those amounts off of the balance sheet. If they're not distinct, the default will be to account for all payments under the contract as a lease. We haven't heard exactly what that means yet. Um, and as you know, we're now in a principles-based accounting world. The question was, what is distinct? We're, we're, we're now in a, a principles-based world where the standard setters want to provide minimal guidance or none. And sometimes when we will go to them with a question such as that, that, we'll actually get a response of, it should be obvious to you. So. Uh, <laughs> It, it could be provided by the landlord. It could be maintenance. It could be, uh, could be otherwise. At one of the meetings that, where this was discussed, the issue came up about future real estate taxes and insurance, for example, whether those should be separated out or recognized up front. And I believe the staff recommended they, be rec they would be recognized as part of the obligation up front. Okay, I'll talk about that in a, in a minute when I get to measurement. Again, if the payments change, you're going to have to go through the same process and determine whether you can determine whether the change in the lease payments is attributable to a service or the lease of the underlying asset. If it's attributable to the, the service, again, you would, you would bring it out. If you can't determine uh, wh whether it's attributable to services or to the lease, then you would allocate it 
uh, the pro rata the same way you did at the beginning of the lease, which is a kind of. So what happens in a lease that has seven or eight amendments? Do you have to go through this mumbo jumbo seven or eight times? With all due respect. Yes. And, and I say that with respect, but it seems like crazy, doesn't it? Well, it actually, it actually gets a little more complicated. It's worse than that. This actually occurs uh, for publicly traded companies because, you, you remember, we're, move, we're moving off of the P&L onto the balance sheet. So it now becomes a Sarbanes-Oxley issue, particularly if you have a number of leases so you're actually not only doing it every time you do an amendment, you're also doing it every quarter based on adjustments that may have been made, uh, lease rate changes, any and all of those. Plus, there is still a concept out there of usefulness, so the intangible asset may, in fact, alter as well during the process so that, uh, in fact... You're getting a little ahead of me. We'll, yep. we'll get into that in measurement, but it's much worse. Yes, it will be retroactive when it's applied. No so grandfather. All your existing leases will. No grandfather. No no grandfather. Whatever is in place today. There may be some special provisions for leases that are finance or capital leases today, but that's just a, a tiny uh, number of the leases that are out there. So, this lease asset that we're going to put on the books—it's sort of a different sort of asset. Right. The, the boards did a discussion. You can see this in the slides if you want to look. I took this out of the preliminary views document, and you can look it up. But they decided that a lease, a right to use asset, is an asset. But it's a different form of asset. I mean, it kind of looks like a duck and walks like a duck, I guess, because it's on the left side of the, of the balance sheet. But I'm not sure it can quack. Because it's not really an exit value. It's not something you can take and sell. And in some cases, it's not even really uh, uh, apparent that you can sublet, at least not without permission of the landlord. Uh, it's not available as collateral, generally. It's not available to creditors in bankruptcy. So it's a very different form of asset. It's, a, it's sort of a word we're redefining, in a way. We are redefining what an asset is in this regard, it's really an offsetting debit to a contract obligation, in a way. There is also going to be a requirement to test this for impairment, everybody's favorite activity. So right now, of course, you don't have to test an operating lease for impairment as part of your annual impairment review, but now you would. This is an area that we have a lot of questions about because Leases are being recorded at cost, the amount of the obligation. We're not sure how you would do a fair value of an operating lease. So the boards rejected recording the operating lease at fair value, although there was a strong minority that wanted to go to a full fair value model. But this has been put in, which can be a way of introducing fair value into the asset side particularly as an impairment. And of course, you'll be front-loading the rent expenses, depreciation and interest. Because of the way the interest rate works, you know on your mortgage, your first payments are almost all interest, your rent expense is going to be much higher in the early years of a lease and then taper off as you go forward instead of the straight line that we're accustomed to today. So you'll have a much higher amount of interest and depreciation combined at the beginning of a lease, which then will taper off as the asset gets older. How does that affect value? I mean, we all we want rates to go 
working against the ownership side. I don't know. Can you explain that a little better? Because you, in 10 years out, you want to sell your asset at a higher. Well, this is for the lessee's accounting that I'm referring to. For the lessor, that's going to be, they're going to have a di different, they're still going to have the least asset on the books. I, I, and I will talk about that in a little bit. It's also a different concept of a liability. And this is really where some of the issues come in. It's a discounted estimated future payments, which is really a forecast that we're now going to book as the obligation. And you're going to forecast the minimum contractual lease payments, which that's the hard number. And then you're going to add in payments in likely future option periods. You're going to add in estimated contingent cash flows. You're going to have a very different type of a structure for assembling both the obligation and the asset cost that you'll put on the lease. Now, we, we protested this in, in our comment letter. Contingent payments, we think you first would have to look and see whether they're for a service or for the lease of the, of the asset. That hasn't been uh, clarified as yet. But also, some contingencies are, in fact, contingencies. You don't owe the money until you do something, until some other event happens. And estimating that before that event happens, we think, violates the definition of a liability, and therefore an asset. For example, if I have a contract for equipment and if I have additional use or go to a certain number that I would have a contingency for those use, this would, you would estimate it before you actually incur the additional charges. Now, today, we would often accrue, uh, we often put in contingent payments if they're considered to be highly probable. This could happen if I had a lease that was purely based upon a percentage of sales. And then, actually, we're seeing some of these right now in, in the marketplace. Well, and you, you can reasonably forecast that sales would be at a certain level. As an anti-abuse provision, it would be, uh, you could attribute a minimum lease payment. Sometimes there actually would be a penalty if you didn't uh, uh, reach a certain minimum. But now, all contingencies are going to need to be estimated and then reevaluated quarterly, at least to look and see if anything has changed under the lease. Quarterly for a public company, you private companies, you, you don't have to do it except at the end of the year. Now, the difference that you're going to have here is that this is going to be a much harder process to record or evaluate. It, it, it's, you're really almost doing evaluation of the lease at the time that the lease is signed. Because you're doing a forecast of the future cash flows, discounting them, and booking that amount. That's, that's, that's going to cause, uh, you're going to need to retrain a lot of people to be able to engage at that level in doing the bookkeeping for a lease. Uh, this is the one that I have the most trouble with. You would recognize the longest possible lease term that is more likely than not to occur. To me, an option is just that. It's an option. You have a choice. You don't incur the liability until you exercise the option. 
But the boards have made a decision that you would recognize both an asset and a liability based upon the longest possible lease term that is more likely than not to occur. Not probable or highly probable, more likely than not. So it's a lower standard. And by using the longest possible lease term, this means your documentation would need to reflect why you didn't use a longer lease term, not why you incorporated the option periods in the lease. It would be why you didn't incorporate option periods in the lease. This will include options to renew at market rates. Good question. An option to terminate is considered the same thing. You would still, then that would be. Now, an option to expand is, is, is I think, will be an option to engage in another lease. That's, that's typically. But I, do you know what? Now that I think about it, I, I don't recall that ever being discussed. But uh, under existing gap, it would normally be considered a new layer on the lease. Yeah, very good question. Anything else? The contingent rents, again, uh, you'll recognize the receivable amount. The lessor would recognize there's be a little bit of a difference between the lessor and the lessee. The lessor will recognize a receivable for amounts that could be measured reliably. And this is a revenue recognition concept. So if you can measure it reliably, you would recognize it as a receivable and as a performance obligation on day one of the lease. If it can't be measured reliably, it would not. But the lessee would recognize it even if it cannot be measured reliably by making an estimate, a best estimate. Now, yes? Uh, this is contingent rents we're talking about right now. The lessor would have to recognize the options uh, at, the, at the most likely lease term. And if there's a change, if you make a change and decide that an option period is not going to be exercised, you, you would make an adjustment to the uh, least asset and the least obligation for any future impact and any past impact or, uh, well, that would be contingent rents. But you're, you're going to adjust the asset and the liability going forward if you make a change in the lease term, up or down. With the contingent rents, you're going to, if when you make these reevaluations, which would be done each reporting period, uh, if any new facts or circumstances occur, maybe a change in the rental rates or things of that nature, uh, you would reassess uh, this amount and any amounts that are attributable to the past, the current reporting period would be expensed and any amounts attributable to future periods would again be discounted and put in as part of the asset and liability and would either cause it to go up or down. So, so, so what happens if gaps move the rent versus <coughs> tax and operating expenses? So is it contingency the tax and operating expenses and do still gaps move? The contingency is more costs that are variable. Uh, it's not really to do. It's not really a tax content concept. So, a real estate ta an amount for real estate tax could be contingent. It could be if it's distinct, though. I would hope you could separate it out and account for it separately as a service. Uh, 
but that's not what the staff recommended, and I'll have to wait until the exposure draft comes out to see where they finally came out on that, because it, the I didn't hear the detail on it. They, the meeting they were supposed to discuss it in a public meeting was canceled, and they, they seem to have gone on to something else. Uh, the lessor is going to have a, a different sort of presentation of these amounts on the balance sheet. Also, it's a, a new meaning of the word triple net. This is what the left side, the asset side of a balance sheet will look like for a lessor. You're going to have your leased assets, net of accumulated depreciation. That's what you would have today. Now you're also going to show as a separate line your performance obligations. This is your requirement to uh, permit the lessee to use the property, and then the lease receivable, and you're gonna add those three up and show a total. Now, there is another method under discussion next week, as I said, the derecognition method, and we don't know exactly what, how, how that would work as yet, but uh, stay tuned for, for next week. So on this chart, where does the net rent get into? Well, this is the balance sheet, but the but the rent, it's a good question, the rent would show up the same way on the income statement. You would net the, th the different amounts. Where, the, where this becomes a real problem is where you have a tenant who is subletting space, actually the, as, as it currently stands, and we've had this discussion, John got us uh, in talking to the project managers for FASB and IASB, is you actually wind up having the same space with two different accounting methods as a, you know, a client becomes a tenant on one side and a, and a sub-landlord on the other. So what's interesting, same piece of real estate, different results. If I was a, a tenant that had sublet a property, <clears throat> I would be showing my asset, right to use asset, and then I would have the performance obligation and the lease receivable underneath it for a sublease. And then on the right side of the balance sheet, I'll still have my original lease obligation if it's a sublease. Uh, they're going very fast. By the, by the way, uh, sale and leaseback would now uh, be accounted for as a sale of the property, and then you would just put the property right back on the books as a leased asset, if it qualifies for derecognition. It's not quite clear how that's going to work. There's a common element, that thread, that runs through several projects right now. The concept is called control. And at the, most, the May 5th meeting of the FASB, when they were discussing issues about the derecognition of real estate, at least two of the board members said they didn't think control works for real estate, which was a really interesting result because if control unzips, Revenue recognition comes undone, and so does the lease accounting standard. So we're, we're not sure where they're going with that. But at the moment, if control has been transferred, you would recognize the sale, the leaseback would come back and be on the books. This is important if any of you use sale and leaseback as a financing method. It's still a good financing method if you need the cash, but uh, it's going to be on the books, so don't count on it as being an off-balance sheet transaction. That could be good, though, because maybe you wouldn't have to, put, uh, to accept some of the, the terms which can be onerous about participating in the future profits of the property or even buying it back, uh, potentially. In one of your first slides, you mentioned that it's determined at least 
One of your first slides, you mentioned that it would only be determined at the lease expiration. So what does that do for uh, build-to-suit transactions where you might be the sort of owner of construction in progress? Does any of that change? Or the sale lease back, the derecognition on the front end, does that change? They're, they're talking about eliminating all of the leasing literature. Include, you know, FAS 98 was the sale and lease back provision. And this, there was an EITF 9710 that was the... Uh, during the construction period. I think during the construction period, you would uh, accumulate the costs the way you would now uh, and probably have to account for it as a sale at the end the way, and then recognize a, a lease. Now, whether they'll go with the deemed ownership or not, I don't know. They have not discussed that at this point in time. <clears throat> but uh, it would be... Again, those transactions will be significantly affected because a lot of the structuring today is to make sure to limit involvement during the construction period because you don't want to get it on your balance sheet and not be able to get it off. Well, I was going to say there's another, another thing is we take very, a lot of care in terms of how much security deposit can be on it, the participating in the upside of the property, but if the determination is at the sort of what happens at lease expiration, perhaps there's an opportunity to take there more liberties will, earlier in the lease that you can't There will hurt. be opportunities. I think sale and leaseback could in some ways become more attractive because you wouldn't have to forego these possibilities of, of exercising at the cost of having it on the balance sheet, at, at that cost. Uh, it is control at the end of the project. Let me go back to that slide really quick since uh, that came up. I know I, I did skip over it. The bright line between what is a sale and what is a lease, look at these. Title of the underlying asset transfers automatically. It's reasonably certain that a bargain purchase option will be exercised. These are the classic real estate ones. They look familiar because those are the requirements we have today in phase 13. That's why I put a flux capacitor over here uh, to take us back into the 80s when, when this was written. You're, it's the same thing, only now, instead of being the line between an operating lease and a capital lease, it's going to be the line between an, an operating slash capital recorded lease and a sale of the asset. Thank you for bringing that up. Uh, okay, this is all moving very fast. Those of you who follow accounting uh, measures closely, I think the FASB is putting out eight exposure drafts between now and the end of June 30th. This has never happened before. Never. Collectively, they constitute a major change in the accounting model. It's not just some new rules. There, there's some new concepts in here as to what's an asset, what's a liability, what's revenue, how it's going to be recognized, and when. Uh, the financial instruments are essentially all going to go at fair value and the balance sheet with a new proposal coming out. We're moving to a different accounting model. Uh, I don't know if we can absorb the change that fast because I can tell you right now, our technical experts at the firm are having trouble keeping up. I mean, we have day jobs too, and I'm sure all of you do, and trying to keep up with uh, eight fairly major projects. And you also have to keep a weather eye on the IASB in London because what they do matters here because either we could end up going to these international financial reporting standards in a few years. 2016 is the blink of an eye if they decide to go in that general direction. Or 
even if we don't, they're often now the, the breakwater, the icebreaker for these new standards is often now the ISB. In particular, there's a new standard out for pension and post-retirement benefit accounting that could be a harbinger of the future of that accounting here in the United States. So uh, one of our thoughts that, and we're going to comment on, is that, you know, slow down a little. Give us a break. It's, if they don't, the changes that come out next year are going to be the equivalent of taking intermediate one and two all over again, maybe three, for those of you who took a third course. But it's going to be a rigorous training program to keep your existing people up to date and those poor people that are just graduating out of college today. So here's the summary. The proposed standards does talk about booking an obligation and booking a right to use asset, but it goes way beyond booking an obligation for these minimum lease payments. Okay? It will increase the measurement complexity. There'll be additional costs to record a lease. There'll be additional costs probably to structure a lease to fit within this model. There'll be ongoing costs to monitor the lease and remeasure over time. Uh, it introduces conceptual issues, I think, as to what's an asset and what's a liability. I think it's inconsistent with the accounting for similar property, plant, and equipment. It's going to make it a lot easier to just own the assets, frankly. It's also inconsistent with how we would account for an option, a financial option. We would never recognize an ob uh, a liability for ownership of an option. And it's going to introduce a new bright line uh, between leases and executory contracts and more or less leave in place the one we have already between a lease and a sale. Uh, both UGL Equus and Grant Thornton have these documents up on our websites. This is our page. It's the Lease Accounting uh, Resource Center. Uh, we collaborated on three different papers describing the lessee accounting. The lessor accounting, we just, uh, we're issuing a paper today to be the fourth paper that goes in there. And there's some other uh, documents, including the discussion paper from the FASB. And I will that, with that, turn it back over to my friend and colleague. Thank you. Uh, here's the practical implication as we know it today, changes. Uh, as uh, John described, we're, going, we're essentially going from the profit and loss statement over to the balance sheet. Uh, so, if you're going to do leases, short term, no option, no termination, none of that. It's just, we're going to lease, we recognize we're having an intangible asset that has probably no value, may in fact cause you difficulty under debt coven covenants. Uh, so that's the leasing side. Uh, because it has a, an ownership component, but you want to go and have the practical uh, flexibility that goes with leasing. You then, we work, we're, we're actually working now and we'll spend the next year working on deals, uh, structures such as condo with a put, uh, so that you have the same impact of having a real asset on the books, but you have a put. We actually ran that by the FASB, IASB project managers. They say it works. Uh, so in this room, there, uh, for the next five, ten years, uh, related to leasing and what companies are trying to achieve through their leasing, we wind up having uh, extra points for creativity, also extra points for being able to go and move things back over to the profit and loss statement 
so that it's a deduction for service. All of those are going to become key. Uh, one of the, the practical, oops, one of the practical uh, responses to this uh, for, for companies, particularly publicly traded, right now real estate is essentially a one-year impact against the profit and loss statement. It may be a big number, but in fact, most, in the, most corporate real estate departments are independent, rarely wind up running into either the CFO or the Treasury staff. Move to the, uh, to the balance sheet, Sarbanes-Oxley, debt covenants, any sort of corporate capitalization structures, the CFO is going to get involved, the real estate departments are going to have less autonomy, we're going to have to, in servicing our clients, spend more time in the C-suite uh, than we do now trying to get real estate deals done. So there, again, practical implication is, is that where you currently have a point of contact who can say yes without getting up into the CFO or the Treasury staff, that is going to go away. Um, Again, they the say that it, we go from a one-year impact only to multi-year. A lot more people are going to start looking at these transactions. That's why shorter terms, maybe, or ownership uh, is going to become a real possibility. Uh, again, right now, leasing has no Sarbanes-Oxley implications or, or minor, uh, particularly with companies publicly traded are going to have to go and begin to figure out the impact from a Sarbanes-Oxley side. To John's point, uh, if you have a, an option, usually those are at market rates. Uh, again, the, all of us in this room are really good at uh, selecting uh, market rates seven years from now. So again, uh, and remember the CFO and the CEO have to sign their 404 statement every quarter. It's wrong if you've guessed the interest rates wrong, they go to jail. So, I mean, again, if you don't particularly like the CFO, you may be able to take care of them this way. I, I've had a number of discussions. When I talk to the Treasury staff, nobody gets worried. When I talk to the CFO, he's worried. So I, we, we do have a, a slightly different uh, response depending on uh, who's getting uh, involved. One of the things that we believe that, uh, you know, again, a lot, in talking to a lot of private companies, and we've had long discussions with John and the folks at uh, Grant Thornton, is, okay, well, this only really has major impact for publicly traded companies. That's really not true uh, if you do any government contracting. We've already had some fairly lengthy uh, discussions with the GSA. They're going to go and require migration out of the current FASB 13 into the new rule. If you do uh, any sort of uh, capital financing with a publicly traded company, you're going to have to do it. So again, the, for those folks that just go and say, well, it, this is really a problem for publicly traded, the privates will just continue the way they're going. These days, particularly with what we anticipate to be the changes in the capital markets, everybody's going to have to do it. It's going to have an impact both uh, uh, not only on your day-to-day -day operation of your own internal customer, uh, you as your own internal operations, but also on your customer. And, and so uh, that is probably the biggest point as we go and give this presentation around the country is as the privates keep going, well, it's a problem, and we go, no, it's your problem too. Uh, again, uh, just to, to reiterate uh, John's point, what we have now is an operating lease, uh, uh, which is against the P&L. 
uh, everything is moving over to capital leases. So that's what we currently have. Uh, anecdotally, as best we can tell, uh, the, the current FASB rule as it has been uh, taken care of over the last 30 years has given a bias towards leasing of about 90-10. We believe as a result of this rule we're probably at a 50-50. Again, the, some companies, uh, particularly if they have a lot of intellectual property, cannot take another intangible asset without running into debt covenant issues. Uh, it's, it's interesting. Uh, we, we've been giving this presentation uh, for about a year now. I have some CFOs that go, well, I'll just wait till it happens. I have other CFOs who said, I'll never lease another square foot. We're going to own everything and bring a real asset. If we're going to go and have that type of liability, we might as well have a real asset and a, a debt liability as opposed to some sort of contingent liability that we don't know what we really have and can guess wrong for Sarbanes-Oxley issues. Uh, and that really is kind of the, the, the practical impact uh, that it's going to have a long-term effect. Uh, it certainly is going to go and have a, a dramatic effect on balance sheets. Uh, and then you have to go, as John said, you have to worry about any employment contracts that are based on ratios from the balance sheet or possibly profitability because, again, as rent comes off as a deduction, EBITDA goes up, remarkably taxes will go up. So that's a, uh, you have instead of flatline uh, gap uh, uh, hits against the, the P&L, you now have a declining balance. The, at which adjust because it's based on a net present value of what was originally the average capital cost. We now believe it's going to be the average cost of borrowing, which if you have a company, which I was with the CFO two weeks ago, who doesn't borrow, and he said, well, what rate am I going to have? And I said, good luck, and I hope you guess correctly because you are going to, again, have to sign your 404 that you have the, you've gone and said, this is the exact uh, borrowing rate that we will use. Now, in, in our conversation with the project managers, just so you know, we did ask them to consider a safe harbor for consulting uh, folks uh, such as ourselves uh, uh, as an expert, and they essentially said, no, it, that will work itself out with the SEC. So. Uh, we've got about uh, 10 minutes left uh, for questions and answers. Uh, so, Steve, right, go right ahead. So, what's the point here? I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't see where, where this is getting anything. I mean, well, I, the the point is is off balance sheet. I mean, it's Enron. It's uh, they they want to go right now on particularly for the publicly traded. It's comment two uh, in the 10K. I mean, it's the second paragraph. It says, here's my leasing. They, the FASB, ISB, want, uh, they see this more as a financing. They want it to look like debt. It is debt. It, uh, and so they believe that this brings clarity to the financial statements. Again, you've heard John, I think, state a position of why this may not be true. But uh, because of so many of the contingencies that we, we have discovered during the process. But bottom line is, is that they believe that this is a better reflection in analyzing the value of a business by bringing this obligation many times 20 years plus onto the balance sheet and not worrying about the fact that it's a deduction. We, we, did a, a, we do a CFO survey twice a year to ask questions like that. Uh, when we ask if 
<clears throat> they were in favor of putting a lease obligation on the uh, balance sheet. 81% said yes, it seems reasonable. But they had in mind something more like the minimum lease payments. Right. When we changed that to say, well, should we put in these other estimates of these future lease periods and contingent rents, the support drops to, into the mid-40s. So it, it is controversial. I think the FASB had a mandate to put the debt portion of it, the minimum lease payments on the balance sheet, but they've gone way beyond that. Yes? Would a right of first refusal then be considered an option? Yes. That would be a purchase option. Yeah, they, there you have a purchase option, and, they, and they, then you get into revenue recognition, and, and so you wouldn't have one. I, again, it's, a, it's, it's going to be interesting, and, and as I say, uh, at, at Equus, we're going to spend almost a year retraining our transaction guys on how to work under this. Uh, and as I say, first thing off is going to be lease versus buy. I mean, we're already doing that now. Uh, we have a number of companies that their normal term is 15 years. We're shortening it down in anticipation. No grandfather clause. So whatever we do today is going to have uh, an impact. We are taking a look at the impact uh, from a capital standpoint. And particularly, we have discovered in working with debt covenants, and that's going to be a big renegotiation issue uh, that's going to cause a number of concerns as uh, we go through this process of transition. I, I believe they're just considering that an option to purchase the remaining useful life of the asset. I have a market impact question. Um, next year, after this all goes into effect, a lot of corporations had done this to be off balance sheet. Obviously, whenever you talked about sale leasebacks, that's why people were doing that. Um, what are we going to see in terms of the, the commercial real estate market? Everyone hopes it's going to recover in 2011. Are we going to see more corporations buying in their space, buying buildings instead of leasing space? And I, I guess related but very different, how are we going to see this play out in the quarterly earnings calls for public yes. companies? Uh, again, I mean, we, we actually did a survey. Uh, unfortunately, we were a little short. While, while we've had, we have a a website or, a, or a, a blast of these papers that goes out to 3,000 CFOs and then we have a, a feedback in. Uh, from a market standpoint, again, we don't know right now, best guess is, is in fact what you say, 50-50 uh, lease versus own uh, and it all, and it may, what's interesting is, is you can have, we, we've uh, gone through this situation where you have two companies in the same industry about the same size but one, uh, for example, leases their IP and their equipment, uh, they're going to have a very different view of how to go and deal with their real estate from the same company that actually owns their IP and goes and buys their equipment. So uh, we're not exactly sure how it's going to ultimately shake out. Uh, impact on the real estate industry, unknown. Uh, it depends if we ever start actually getting a, a real mark-to-market -market and some transactions going. Uh, and we do have companies that are looking at this on that basis. If they get it, this is now the time to buy it because from their standpoint, the impact on their balance sheet is better by owning as opposed to leasing. We're seeing about 50, 51% are saying they wouldn't change their current practices. And, but uh, what, what we're seeing is, uh, predicting anyway, is that uh, a fairly large number will uh, still lease, but the terms of the leases will change. Uh, they may shorten up, which is be unfavorable to the lessors, 
who of course like to, sh to show longer leases when they're financing. Or uh, else we'll get a transaction, as I say, condo with a put is one that we use uh, because it, the condo laws in this country are actually fairly flexible, never been used that way, but this may in fact force <laughs> Uh, a very different structure for real estate as an asset class. I saw a sign over on Wacker Street for office condos uh, a couple weeks ago, so. Yes. Could you try to give us a sneak peek of the summary slide for your lessee slideshow, your lessor slideshow? Do you know, uh, there's still a couple of significant issues to be resolved, uh, and the derecognition one is huge. Uh, it, it's just huge, and that's, that, that's coming up. But for the lessor, uh, it's because it's net, you're not going to have as big an impact on the balance sheet. The balance sheet's not going to gross up nearly as much. On day one, the impact would be close to zero. Now, there would be uh, some balance sheet impact over time because the obligation will change at a different rate than the asset will change. So there will be some impact. Uh, it will be very complex. Uh, to, to read, I don't know, uh, I'm not sure what the benefit to the users of the financial statements is from all this complexity, but this is, uh, this is the direction they're going. Where, where this has a, a particularly significant impact is in, on M&A where you have a company buying another company in the industry and doesn't need the space, needs to sublet it, all of a sudden it's going to go and make changes uh, on, on the M&A accounting uh, as, as part of the transaction because you're going to have to be during that process when real estate has generally been the least uh, considered asset that has to be dealt with. It now needs to be brought forward and understood. What are you going to own? What are you going to lease? How much are you going to have to sublet? And what's that impact going to be on the final financial statements? You're, you're going to have a completely different valuation in an acquisition than uh, issues than you would have today, where you're only looking at over and under market leases. Strategic issues, too, because at the end of your presentation, it sounded to me like maybe we're going to get away from 15-year leases and start doing a lot of a lot of five years at one after another after another. Right. And it, it's with, well, you have no mention of yeah. foot building with no mention of it uh, uh, at all that you're going to do the next one. I mean, it's, it, it's going to be interesting. Well, theoretically, this is one, one of my objections to right now, is if I have a one-year lease with, with the option to renew for 10 years, or if I have a 10-year non-cancelable lease, those are two very different economic contracts. But there's potentially they would be accounted for identically under this proposal. Because if I don't have any reason to believe that I would be moving out within 10 years, I would use the longest lease term, which would be 10 years for the, the cancelable one. You can't just pick a number out of the air. You would, you would actually really need to show why, why you think you're not going to exercise those options, because it's the longest non-cancelable lease term. I, I, again, I, John will stay here for the Q&A. Unfortunately, I have to go catch a flight. So uh, again, thank you very much. I, I appreciate the opportunity. You need to run really fast to catch this. <laughs> Sir. Estimate the value of that obligation, i.e., if you're what the market rent is for that space. Well, the the initial proposal, the initial preliminary views. It would have it just said you would reevaluate these every quarter for a public company, uh, and then they they got a little flack on that. So now they're saying if anything changes, or if there's significant changes. But 
the problem, you know, what changes? Rents change, you know, the, the price of, of, you know, different things changes. I, I think they're going to try and make it so that you wouldn't have to do a complete redo every quarter, but I think your internal control system is going to have to show a review every quarter, is my guess. Sir. Hi. Um, I've seen signs on the street, green leases, and I've heard a lot about green leases from the Green Building Council. And uh, how does that play into, does green leasing change the equation here at all, or is it actually muck it up? Because they, they encourage 10-year terms as opposed to one-year terms, and, you know, less churn is better. You're kind of encouraging churn here. I'm just wondering, how's, well, how does green lease... It's not necessarily encouraging churn, because even if I go with the shorter lease term, if, as long as there's options in there, I may still have to record the, the, the longer term. Okay? So it's, it's, you're not really going to get the churn... The, you, I don't think you'll see clients moving any more often just because of the accounting uh, issues. I mean, that would be ridiculous and to incur costs to, to, to keep things off of your balance sheet. But, but they will, may want to have a different structure to their leases. Certain uh, services made more distinctly apparent within the lease. They may be less, uh, uh, the, the options that they have in there, they may, uh, it's going to be hard to measure them. How do you measure an option, if, if, this, if this is day one of the lease and I have two renewal options, one at, at market, one 10 years out, one 15 years out, how do I measure that? I mean, it's uh, got a Ouija board? Just, uh, if you could uh, address the requirement to restate all the financial statements when this comes in. Uh, it's, it's not restate. It's prospectively going forward, but there will be no grandfathering to, for the operating lease. So on day one, there will be a transition provision, and you will put the lease on the balance sheet. You can let me off the hook. Anybody else? Well, thanks. So there's some great questions. I really appreciate everything. Thank you, John. Appreciate everybody coming around, sticking around for the Q&A session. Again, fill out the surveys at the, uh, on your table. And uh, John, thank you very much. We appreciate it.